Of course, like every other teenage kid, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. When I was 16 years old, I took off and drove across the country to Wyoming, went into the Wind River Range and discovered mountains. In 1973, Yvonne Chouinard founded Patagonia. I never wanted to be a businessman. All I wanted to do was do my craft and climb mountains. So then I had to figure out a way to where I was going to be a businessman, but I was going to do it completely on my own terms. Build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Join us at Patagonia.com. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Then Beer, with additional support from New Belgium Brewing and Kuat Racks. In the golden days, the true dirtbags lived to climb. They didn't work, they didn't have a permanent address, they didn't have sponsors. They ate the leftovers off tourist plates and slept in beater cars, or in caves, or wherever they could, without having to pay. They stayed in one place as long as the weather facilitated climbing, then migrated to the next destination where climbing was in season. In the past 40 years, our world, the outdoor world, whether it be climbing, kayaking, skiing, it seems to have grown exponentially more crowded, more expensive, more regulated, and rules have grown more strictly enforced. More campsites have implemented fees and time limits. Locks have appeared on more dumpsters, all of which makes it close to impossible to live by a different set of rules. Dirtbagging is dying, if it isn't already dead. At least, that's what some people are claiming. I had this hunch for myself that, like, everyone was out just trying to climb. Like, in the end, that's what it's about for me and what I think it's about for almost everybody. And no one really cares about the way that they're doing it. This is Matt Van Bean. I used to dumpster dive. I don't need more. I don't need to, so I'm fine with that. Um, I would eat dumpster food, though, if it came my way. Like, it's like a, a gracious thing if someone else was like, hey, I got some dumpster food. I'm like, sweet, free shit, right? I mean, I'm down with that. And now I have a van and I'm living in it, which is like, you know, dirtbag plus. The years Matt spent migrating around the climbing circuit, they've left him with a different perspective than the people who profess that dirtbagging has met the Reaper. Obviously, people are living out of their cars. Like, obviously, people are road tripping still. Obviously, people are at least living their so-called dream. You know, yeah, gone are the days of just, like, eating out of a ravioli can for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and, and just climbing your brains out. Like, now we have technology and we have community. We have resources that all play into various forms of, like, the modern dirtbag. So where it sounds like some like 50s commercial, right? Welcome to the modern dirtbag. Make use of the modern magic of versatile, economical, evaporated milk. I guess I set out with the intent, not directly to answer the question of is dirtbagging dead or alive, but more along the lines of like, what, what is the current state of this idea of dirtbagging like what what is it right now what is it today so last october matt found himself in yosemite it's like mecca 
it's like the place that you go to be a climber and to like test yourself against the history of the ones who came before you. He took a microphone and a recorder and he started asking questions of anyone who would talk to him. Climbers from around the world, climbing rangers, members of Yosar, park employees, people on the road trip circuit, professional climbers, and weekend warriors. They ranged in age from early 20s to their 60s. Some had never been to the valley before. Some had lost count of the number of trips they've made. All of them love climbing in Yosemite. And all of them have found some way to make it happen. Is dirtbagging dead? What does the modern dirtbag look like? You decide. I'm Fitzka Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. So, uh, what are, what are you doing here? Like, uh, you want to explain kind of the situation that you're... Well, we're queuing up for Camp 4, okay? So we, uh, we've flown out from the UK. Uh, we tried to get into the valley early the other morning, but uh, couldn't because of a fire. Mm-hmm. So it was a three o'clock start yesterday, and that failed. And we got up at four this morning, and we've been in line here since five. And hopefully at nine o'clock when the ranger turns up, there'll be some space for us. This is Andy. I came across he and his friend Jeremy near the front of a line that seemed more like it belonged on the sidewalk outside an iPhone release than the small path that leads to the outhouse-sized park service kiosk. Nonetheless, 30 hopeful campers littered the path, buried in sleeping bags and down jackets, while Andy and Jeremy brewed coffee on a jet boil. You're anticipating some space to be available? Well, it says there's 55 spaces going to be freed up today. Oh, wow. So, we're second in line. We're fairly hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> Unless we go to sleep at nine o'clock and everybody steps over us, <laughs> that'd be tragic. And you, but you've been here for a few hours just waiting in the cold. Yeah. yeah. How many times have you been to Yosemite? This, I think, is my ninth trip. Your ninth trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this isn't your first time waiting in line in camp. Oh hell no! Every time, same deal. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah but there's always been something when we've been here, isn't there? Yeah. There's, we've never, we've never, I've never come to Yosemite and, not, and there not being some major event. We've turned up and there's been hantavirus, we've turned up and there's been forest fires, we've turned up and there's been no government, so it was shut. We've turned up and there was a plane crash and yeah. the, then the road was shut. Yeah, so it's, uh, it all happens here. It's, uh, always an adventure. There's, all, there's always some sort of chaos, yeah. yeah. Well, obviously it's worth the hassle. Yeah, it's worth the hassle, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's not really a hassle though, is it? It's just knowing the rules. Yeah, it's funny because it's kind of like the rest of the world. Morning. Hi. Hi. Have you guys been here before? Yes. Yep. Recently or? Uh, I was here last year. Oh, last year. Yep. Okay. And at 9 o'clock, a ranger opened registration. Well, One of you, okay. So review this, one of you needs to initial there, and that will go on the dash of the car. Sure. Okay, I need to see your ID, please. I followed Andy and Jeremy around, and the ranger gave them the obligatory spiel. If you're not in the correct locker, we will impound your things. So if there's something wrong with the locker, you need additional locker, somebody's in it, you gotta come back and let us know. So, right, we'll if you haven't been to Camp 4, it's this long corridor, maybe 100 yards wide, that runs between boulders and giant sequoia trees. 
And this campground is divided up into 20 foot by 20 foot campsites marked with concrete bumpers, kind of like what you might find in a parking lot. There's three parties per site, so maybe four or five tents crowd that space. There's four bear boxes for everyone to get their food in. It's the hub of climbing in Yosemite. It's crowded, loud, and full of activity from 5 a.m. till 10 p.m. quiet hours. To put it mildly, it's a cluster A wonderful one, but a cluster nonetheless. Most people accept the inconvenience the way that Andy and Jeremy do, just a part of what they have to do to climb in the valley. Not that big of a deal. Others view it as a main detractor from their experience in Yosemite. How do you like Camp 4 here? Oh, Camp 4, it's beautiful, international, good people, mostly climbers. Yeah. The only issue is you are, like have to be aware of the rangers. Do you have a run-in? Uh, no, I am fine. No, I just have been lucky, I guess. The other people, not so much. <laughs> yeah, that's what I did here. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite part of the valley here? Maybe this campsite. I like the, I like the sounds and smells and the sights. <laughs> Is that also the least favorite part? All the the trash and the sounds and the smells. It could be. It could be. But I like the combination of it. All. And the squirrels are very friendly. What's What's your least favorite part about the valley? Maybe Camp Four. Did you? Uh, <laughs> that first trip, did you stay in Camp Four? Yeah, I stayed in Camp Four. He, my uncle, he got a, like a curry tent. And he's like, you can stay there if you want, in the curry tent with me. I'm like, no, I gotta go to Camp 4. Gotta sleep in Camp 4. Why, why was that? Why'd you insist on Camp 4? <clears throat> um, all the things I had read up until that point were like, you know, you go to Camp 4. You climb in the valley, you stay at Camp 4. So the camping, I would say, is the biggest problem these days. Um, I mean, in 1970s, I could go into Camp 4 and buy a campsite and stay as long as I wanted, and now I can't. Now I have to find somebody who's willing to let me house it and stay at their house. Um, now you've got connections. Right. So don't unload anything out of the car until you have a place to put it. You have trash recycle bins in this parking lot. They're also by the restrooms, and we have recycle bins for the propane canisters. Everyone will need ID. One way to commit to a life of climbing and to get around the increased regulations in Yosemite, the fees, the time limits on camping, is to get a job in the valley. And no position is more esteemed than Yosemite Search and Rescue, or YOSAR. The team works on call 24 hours a day to carry out rescues for climbers, hikers, and rafters. In exchange, they get paid for the rescues they go on, they get to climb whenever their schedule allows, and they get to stay in one of the nine spacious canvas tents, rent-free, spring through autumn. A few years earlier, my friend Shane Lempe left college to become one of the youngest members ever of the elite Yosar team and pursue climbing full-time. I stopped Shane as he rode a cruiser bike past me on his way through Camp 4. I wanted to see what he thought of the gig. Bleary-eyed and tired, it turned out that he had just returned from an all-night road vigil to prevent drivers from entering an area where, the day prior, a fatal plane crash had taken place during wildfire prevention. When they say you gotta go, like you have to go. So, cause they're like, they're like short on rangers and stuff. So, yep. They're running you thin. You getting paid for that? Yep. Nice. Yep. So, but it's like, oh man, I'd rather go climbing and make money, you know? For sure. Yeah. Or you know, certain points you're like, I really need money. The other points like, I'll like, I'd pay to not go. <laughs> like it's not worth it. Shane loves his job on Yosar and living in the valley, but you could tell the long hours were beginning to wear on him. When he paddled off, 
I turned back to the Yosar camp and discovered a few of its members lounging in the sun, listening to music and chatting about life in the valley. So how how is uh how's Yosar been this year? It's been good. Yeah, first year on the team. Really yeah. psyched on it. Yeah, What's good. your name? He Ken. loves it. He's good. Ken. He's psyched. He gets after it almost mm-hmm. every day. This dude. Yeah. Trying. Yeah. I mean, he's um, everyone around here is psyched. It's, uh, your psych has stayed all season. Everybody else's has waned or injury has messed with What was like the Yosar calling? Was it was it to perpetually be here? Was it was it to get back and help? A little bit of both? Oh everything, yeah. You know, it's awesome just to be here for the entire season, to be part of the community. It's to get a to, cabin so you can get girls. <laughs> I can honestly say that didn't factor into the equation. Well, it did towards the end here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Stu. Yeah. And then there's Stu. I'm probably like the king in <laughs> dirtbag. But you are, Stu. Yeah. Stu, you are. Yeah, I mean, a dirtbag is just knowing, like, kind of how to work it. I mean, like, I'll. used to have the best bivy involving a, a car cover. Yeah, I'll tell him that one. Yeah, what's, what's the vehicle? <laughs> Subaru. Four years I lived in it. But I went to Walmart, and you ever see the rich people in Iwani that cover their cars, like Mercedes and Porsches with those covers? I bought a cover that said Volvo Cross Country for $18 because it fit the Subaru. And I lived under the in the car with the car cover for four years. That's probably a good dirt bag. They, they didn't thermal you? They don't have that thing in the park, the heat sensor thing. You know what I mean? It's just, the cops don't have that. What they do is they'll go, all right, Ed. Let's tow this one, and that'll get the dirt bag out of the car once they say we're going to tow it. Stu is not actually a member of Yosar, but allowed passage in camp as a beloved local. Stu is in his 13th seven-month stint in Yosemite and has climbed in the valley for longer. He now recycles propane for the park. When I first approached, Stu declined to let me tape out. But after we chatted for a few minutes, I pulled out my recorder. <laughs> Stu gave me a look, then a nod, then proceeded to give me his insights into the dirtbag life. I think dirtbag is just so overused. And being a dirtbag used to be an insult, but now you wear it as a Yeah, now, now everyone's like, oh, I want to be a dirtbag. Yeah, you want to be a dirtbag because it's cool. I think, you know, back in the day, a dirtbag, you, you didn't live in Camp 4. You lived in a cave or in a yeah. uh, that that's still I think a criteria. Is uh does a dirt bag need to be like a road tripping dirt bag? Is that is that that's fine, you know, as long as he's not doing it in a brand new sprinter that uh full disclosure here. I'm living in a sprinter van. Well, no, I guess if he I don't you know, it's kinda hard. It's uh <laughs> I think you have to lose your materialism, right? You know? Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. You have to recognize So there's some there's some key things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like climbing is, you know, the end, yeah. and the rest is just like surviving the climb. So really, you're, yeah, yeah you're kind of a dirt. There's just degrees of dirt bag, like the. Yeah. Uh, what are you guys racking up for right now? Uh, we are, we're actually racking up to do some hauling, unfortunately. Oh no. <laughs> Come back down, um, have a cold night in the tent without a sleeping bag, and then go up the next day and go and try and do free rider. 
Nice. Yeah. Beautiful. If you're ready? Uh, yeah. 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 I think she'll be alright. This is Pete Whitaker. The climbing community knows Pete and his partner Tom Randall from Wide Boys, a film that documents their unlikely quest to climb the world's hardest offwood. I found the two semi-professional climbers on my way through the Camp 4 parking lot. It was Pete's first time in the valley, and he had never climbed a big wall before the trip. Tom was the valley veteran on his 14th trip to Yosemite since 1998. So, how, how, Tom, how do you anticipate this, uh, this attempt is going to go? Uh, ooh. Uh, I think I like to keep open-minded on every attempt on El Cap and uh, only ever come back down if you think you're going to die. That's, that's kind of my... The, it's got to be the stopping point because so many times I've been up and been absolute misery and so tired and like you're just angry or upset about something or you don't get on with your partner or you don't get on with climbing. Uh, that's not enough to come back down. You have to just come down if you're going to die. Has that ever happened to you out here? Uh, I've come down once. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What was that like? Uh, have you ever what, died? And I didn't <laughs> die. But I did I did come back down because I was going to die if I continued. Um, <laughs> that sounds and, like a good story. Uh, mainly because it was the first time we ever wanted to try and climb El Cap. And we tried to climb it with no, um, like no cam rack, just with hexes. And... Uh, just a really, really bad rack. We got to like pitch seven and realized it was getting really dangerous, so we came back down. <laughs> I was really young. Sure. So, I, yeah, I didn't have a proper rack. They didn't have a proper rack. But then we came back down, realized that was a really dangerous thing to do, but an experience. And then I went looking around camp four for people who did have a rack. Like, I didn't care about their climbing skills. I just wanted people with a big rack. <laughs> and then I found two other guys. And, and then Massive we, rack. we, yeah, and we climbed it together, and it was an amazing. Oh, so you went back up? Yeah, yeah, we went back up like four days later. But you're, you're not going to give Pete the same experience here. No, no, no one, one no one needs to do that. <laughs> it's pretty stupid, but we were optimistic. Awesome, awesome. Cool. Cool. Good luck, boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah cheers. Thanks. So I'm not, I'm not packing much in terms of eating when we get back. No, I have nothing when we get back. Just nothing. Well, you know, that's too bad. We're going to be hungry. But you can't <laughs> leave anything at the base. Right. You guys, you guys keen to do a little interview? About what? Just Yosemite here. Okay. I mean, well, we're, yeah. we're pretty psyched right now for Half Dome. We're gonna go do that today. You're gonna do half down today. Yeah. Well, tomorrow. Tomorrow. You're you're hiking. Hiking up. in. We're gonna put do it in a push. Camp there again tomorrow night, and then hike out. Meet Mike and Ivan. They both came to the valley for the first time six months earlier, just after they left their respective homes. This is their second time in Yosemite. And yeah, man, been on the road since April. <clears throat> it's just been basically the trad circuit. You're, you're doing the the climbers rite of passage. Tour. Totally, yeah, yeah. It's my third season ever climbing. Um, it only took about two seasons for me to quit my job and move into the car. <laughs> you know? well, what are you driving? A '92 Subaru Loyal. I bought it with 130,000 miles on it. It. Uh... Hey, Chipmunk! 
Get that guy. Huntavirus. Hey! Get it! Thank you. Um, this is perfect for the interview. Yeah. Get him. Mike took off around the west in his Subaru Lyell in search of rocks and climbing partners. For the past six months, he's eked out enough of an income writing about his travels for a small clothing company to avoid dipping too deep into his savings. It gives me the illusion that like I'm a, I'm not like fully dirtbagging it, you know. Like I have a modicum of income and like. Well, that's, that's I've got the... an intention. I've got a purpose. I've got deadlines. Stuff like that. Isn't is that living the dream? Being able to kind of make this lifestyle perpetuate? I don't know. That's the thing. It's like I have the choice now. I could either spend truly every penny I've got and climb throughout the winter in Mexico. Or I could call it a great I know, dude. I or I should call it a great success <laughs> and, and go back to a place back. that I as in back to Jackson Hole really where he has a well paying job he likes as a I youth like counselor. Where he could start filling out applications for graduate programs and school counseling. A job which he decided, in the right location, could afford the perfect schedule for climbing. Afternoon sessions and summers off. Which is great. And now that's living the dream. That's living the dream. I mean, to have a career that you are truly passionate about, doing what you love, and also being able to pursue the, you know, the, the athletic passions that kind of keep you healthy and keep you vibrant, right? But, I don't know. I mean, I gotta learn Spanish sometime. What better way than go down to Mexico and have my Swedish climbing partner, Swiss. Swiss climbing partner, be my, you know, Spanish mentor. Soon after he left, Mike began to run into the same people at different climbing venues and forge friendships. That's how he met Ivan, and they developed a partnership he trusted enough to tackle Half Dome's 2,300-foot northwest face. But despite the simple lifestyle and the friendly faces along the road, Mike, like most men, finds that one part of life remains elusive. Girls. I remember when I was first thinking about getting on the road, my buddy Eric, who's this older guy, and he's done it a couple times, um, he was like, yeah, man, you'll be fine. You won't have an issue with climbing partners or anything. You'll even meet girls, and girls like guys on the road. You like, did? Whatever. <laughs> have I? I don't know about that. <laughs> I do, but every every crusher chick I meet has got a boyfriend with like a sweet Tacoma and like the Goal Zero set up on top, and like, and he's super cool, so you can't really hate the guy, and he like climbs strong and stuff like that. <laughs> so what are you gonna do? You'll be that guy one day. Maybe. You, gotta, you just gotta earn your stripes. Well, I kinda, I made my choice, you know? I've made sacrifices to be here, and I will not name her name. <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's like, you, you make a choice. Do I want to be in a relationship and really work on that and make it work and settle down? Or do I want to do what I want to do, which is to climb and live in a 92 Subaru Loyale? And I think once you make that choice, then you don't really have the right to complain about, you know, the bumpy, lonely road. You gotta be on the road. I gotta be on the road. I gotta, I gotta see where it takes me. You used to get so lonely, I don't know why. I've got no money, but I've got plenty of time. There's nothing doing here, but I really don't mind. And we can get so high. 
So yeah, what, what's your name? Where are you from? I'm Ivan Mattenberger. Yeah, I'm currently from Switzerland. I am um, quit job half a year ago, and uh, since then I'm on the road. Ivan is in his mid-30s, about 10 years older than Mike. He comes off more subdued, but flashes a wry smile when he talks about climbing. What was your job before? I'm a cabinet maker. I spent the last four years in front of a computer, dealing with clients, doing drawings. And I realized, well, it's not. It's a great job, it's very interesting, but it's not as fulfilling as climbing. I mean, I've never been so free as I am right now. <laughs> it's the best, best thing you can so have. So true. <laughs> why, why is that? Yeah, that's what I'm asking. That's actually my biggest fear. I go back and I'm kind of... I'm, I used to be very content with my job. Like, I really did like the job. But, like, climbing is so intense and so fulfilling. So I go back and I might fall into a big depression or whatever, like just, oh, everything, it doesn't excite me anymore. So I need to go more and more extreme, uh, getting better at climbing, doing even crazier stuff, going faster or whatever to keep myself satisfied. Um, well, climbing is addictive and it is a drug. There's, there's no doubt about it, at least for me. Uh, that's like a kind of a fear I have, like just don't seeing the point of life anymore. Ivan may be scared about coming down off of climbing, but he's also not convinced about staying on the road, rejecting the norm in pursuit of climbing indefinitely either. Yeah, I've seen some dirtbaggers, like old dirtbaggers, and it was actually pretty sad. I mean, like, like the true hardcore dirtbagger. He's, it's a homeless guy. It's homeless. Yeah, seriously, he's yeah, homeless. Totally. He doesn't even own. He's homeless car. and he's alone. Uh, he's doing some, uh, some, some weight dressing, and you can see th the emptiness in, like, the disillusion. He can't climb anymore because he's so old. Probably he can. Everything hurts. But he's still a kind of addicted to all these places. I don't want to end like this. Yeah. I don't want to be a homeless. I mean, yeah. Now we're doing it right. Look how beautiful it is. I mean, look how gorgeous it is. I mean, it's so pretty. I found this woman on the El Cap Bridge. She sat in the open rear door of a Toyota Previa. The back of her van had been built out with the plywood bed and shelving of a seasoned climber on the road. Only the streaks of silver in her hair set her apart from the rest of the climber crowd. All right, uh, let's start with um, just like your name, where you're from, uh, your age. No, no, we're not doing age. You're not doing age. Not okay. doing age. Okay. Uh, you can't ask. Yeah. No, let's do. No let's age. do your name, where you're from, and and your your history with okay. your, with Yosemite. Here. Okay. Go ahead. So I'm Sibylla Hechtel. So when I was about ten years old, my father started taking me to Yosemite. And when I was a teen, he started taking me up the climbs up here. She never did tell me her exact age, but I know from rumors around camp that she's over 60, which means that she started climbing in Yosemite in the 1960s. There, 
weren't any other women then. I mean, I was like the only one. And so all the guys were asking me to climb. So that worked out really well. <laughs> I always had climbing partners. But the nice thing was actually there was one woman, there was Bev Johnson, who was incredible. And Beverly wanted to do El Cap, and she was looking for women to do it with. So she says, Sibylla, why don't you go climb the Leaning Tower? I said, oh, fine. You know, it's like she was older than I was and much more experienced. And so generally, I took her advice and did what I was told. I mean, she was sort of my mentor. And so after I'd done the tower, um, we went up on the Triple Direct. And, um, and it was such a gorgeous experience. And I just had so much fun up there. And I just loved being on the wall. And as I'm sitting there right now looking at El Cap and thinking, God, this is the most beautiful place in the world, I still want to be up there. I mean, how can anybody not want to be up there, you know? So was that, was that the first all-female yes, ascent? Yes, that was the first all-female nice. ascent. That's right. The first female ascent of the 3,200-foot El Capitan by a route about the same difficulty as the famous nose. In 1973, El Cap was still considered an expert's mission and rarely climbed. Modern camming devices didn't exist yet. Instead, they hammered pitons and slotted metal chocks into cracks, which makes climbing much slower. It took them six and a half days to reach the top. So, so that was, you know, the, the 70s, and yes. now we're 14, Yeah, 15. like 40 years later, huh? So, I mean, did you, have you climbed here throughout? Did no, you? no. So I was climbing in Yosemite all through the 70s while I was a student, but then I graduated from school and got a job. <laughs> got a job in Michigan and hardly came to Yosemite at all in the 80s. And then, in 1990, I had a child, I was pregnant, had a baby, so I... From Michigan, she got a job in Pasadena, and then in Colorado, where she wrote for academic science journals. During those years, she shifted her climbing focus primarily toward mountaineering, until a close call sent her back toward dry rocks again. In 1995, Sibylla made it back to Yosemite and joined Yosemite Search and Rescue, which meant that she had a place to stay in the valley and free daycare. She worked search and rescue nearly every climbing season through 2001. And then I unfortunately was not invited back to Yosar um, for mysterious reasons that are not clear to me. Um, and so I stopped coming to Yosemite because I didn't have a place to camp. Mm. And I had a child and I couldn't get daycare or anything else. But the child grew up, graduated high school, went away to college, and all of a sudden I was a free person again and, you know, here I am, back in Yosemite. So, um, when you're here climbing now, what, yes. uh, what are your current climbing aspirations? Oh, my current climbing aspirations. You know, I mean, everybody's doing the nose in a day now. Nobody did it, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, but today everybody's doing it. So I figured, well, if everybody else does it, we can do it. So that became our goal. When she says our, she means her and her friend Eric from Colorado, who's also over 50. Um, so I came here in May and I made three runs to Dolt Tower, which is the first 10 pitches in the nose, and I established that I was much too slow. You want to go to Dolt, that's a fourth of the way time-wise. You really want to get there in like four or five hours, and I wasn't getting there in four or five hours. So my current plan is to 
maybe do a few more dolt runs and then if I get fast enough, try to do the nose in a day. I don't know if it's possible, but it's really, really, I tell you, when I was going up to Dalt last May, I was just so happy to be there. I was just so thrilled. I was just so completely grateful that I was able to be up there because so many of my friends that I climbed with in the 70s are like dead now or not climbing and, and I was still up there. I was still up there, still able to climb on Dole and physically not that injured and alive and it was beautiful and it was the most wonderful place in the world to be and I was so thrilled. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, perfect. Yeah, thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs> By the end of the day, I came to a conclusion. This question, about what it means to be a dirtbag and whether or not dirtbagging is dead, it misses the point. Things change, the world evolves, and everyone holds their own nostalgia for the good old days. For me, it's simple. I think dirtbagging is more of a mindset that someone carries with them throughout life than a current life situation. I believe if someone places climbing, or any adventurous endeavor, at a premium in their life, they will always be, in some way, a dirtbag. From Sibylla and Stu, to Mike and Ivan. Because regardless of age, profession, or the make and model of their vehicle, all these folks embody the spirit of being a dirtbag. I think that counts for more than whether or not you live out of a backpack, a van, or a house. Dirtbagging means a willingness to stay frugal, forego creature comforts for nights spent outside, and always be dreaming of that next climb. It's maintaining an ability to appreciate the nuance of a splitter crack, the wind on a ridgeline, and the warmth of a fire on a cold desert evening. Is dirtbagging alive and well? That's for you to decide on your next adventure. Matt is still out there, living on the road in his van and balancing photography and climbing. Despite his own case of being domestically challenged, Matt hopes to settle down in Leavenworth, Washington this summer, continue working on a guidebook for his local crag, index, thanks for doing that Matt, and continue living his dream. Music today by ADC Bicycle, Harmonica Lewinsky, My Monthly Date, and Denise Casey. Denise is a friend of the diaries who kindly allows us to use her music. The rest of the tracks come from, the rest of the tracks come courtesy of Mevio's Music Alley, and free music archive. Whether it's a pledge donation, a t-shirt purchase, a story submission, or a note of thanks, you keep the diaries thriving. Thank you all so much for your support. Support for the diaries comes from the good people at Patagonia. We have been working with Patagonia on this project that's just been one of the coolest things I've ever, ever done for work. Right now, there is an opportunity to protect 1.9 million acres in Southeast Utah as part of a national monument. And we were lucky enough to go help tell the story of, of one activist, one climber named Josh Ewing, who's become a good friend, and his fight to protect the Bears Ears, which is this place that he loves. Josh's story is incredible. You can find more about it and watch and then take action to protect this area, which includes Indian Creek, which I know is an important place to a lot of us. 
at patagonia.com backslash climb. Additional support comes from New Belgium Brewing, who encourages you to follow your folly, and from Kuat Racks, makers of a better bike rack. This episode of The Diaries was produced by Matt Van Bean, Jen Altschul, Becca Call, and me, Fitzcahal. You've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Beautiful. Thanks, guys. Yeah. There's, there's some good stuff. Oh, see how he ended up <laughs> finagling? That's kind of weasley. He ended up getting up there.